Good afternoon, everybody. It's great to be here. My name's Nicodemus, and it's really great being here in Australia. Uh, although I must say it was a little bit hairy getting here. I'm still not used to those flying camels. Uh, what, what do you call them? Aeroplanes. Uh, and then getting getting here from the airport was was also a bit of an adventure. Um, there weren't many other donkeys on the M5, and I, I got a bit of a hurry up from other people on the road. Anyway, enough of that. I'm here today to tell you about uh, an amazing meeting I had the other day with Jesus of Nazareth, um, that teacher who's been causing such a stir recently. But before we get there, I want to tell you a bit about myself. Um, I'm a Pharisee uh, and also a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, if I wasn't so modest, I'd, <clears throat> I'd, I'd say I was a pretty important person in Israel. Uh, I, I'm an expert in the Jewish law. Uh, when people want to know how to follow God and uh, obey his law, they come to me first. Um, people look up to me as one of Israel's leaders. Uh, not only that, I'm considered a bit of a role model when it comes to pleasing God and following his law. Uh, but back to this meeting with Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I found it, because of my reputation and my position, I found it necessary to go to him at night. Uh, I, I couldn't just waltz up during the day in front of everybody. I wanted to stay under the radar, uh, even though radars aren't invented yet, I know. But <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to be seen to be consulting with this rabbi rebel rabbi. Um, you know, he's already made a lot of enemies in Israel, uh, especially amongst the Pharisees and, and my colleagues at the Jewish ruling council. But unlike some of my colleagues, I thought this guy might actually have been sent by God. Uh, he's performed all these miraculous signs and, 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 and it, if he wasn't from God, surely he couldn't do all those signs. So I go to him and tell him, that, that we know that he must have come from God. But instead of telling me who he really is, he drops a clangor. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above or born again. After I'd picked myself up from the ground, I tried to work out what on earth he was saying. Was this bloke on magic mushrooms? Had he been eating some of those fermented olives, you know, that you can get by the roadside going out of Jerusalem? It gradually dawned on me that he was trying to tell me that I couldn't enter the kingdom. Me, a Pharisee, an expert in the law, that I somehow needed to start my whole life again, a new life. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I respected him, but at the end of the day, this guy hadn't even been to Bible college. He had no qualifications. And here he was telling me, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, how I, that I wasn't in the kingdom of God. Well, he said, then he goes on to say that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And he went on to say that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. As I thought about it, he seemed to be saying that this new birth, being born from above, isn't like a physical birth, but it's something new entirely, a spiritual birth. 
when I asked him about how these things could happen, he sounded surprised that I was Israel's teacher and I didn't know. Then he said that I don't understand when he speaks about earthly things, so how am I going to understand when he talks about heavenly things? Then he goes to, on to say that the only one who's ever been up to heaven is the one who comes from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he finished by telling the story about Moses lifting up the snake in the desert, saying the Son of Man must be lifted up and that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Well, at this point I was totally spun out. Why was he talking about the Son of Man? I knew who the Son of Man was. I know my, my Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. The Son of Man is the promised Messiah, God's King who would come on the clouds of heaven and who would rule over all nations and all people everywhere. Yeah, I knew who the Son of Man was. But what does this have to do with Jesus? And what does this have to do with born, being born again from above? It's all too much. It's all, it's all too much for my head. It's about to explode. I think I need to go and get one of those fermented olives. Well, it's been great talking to you, but I'm off. So at this point, whoop, I better leave that one on. At this point, uh, if we can get, we, we'll leave Nicodemus to uh, think about his encounter with Jesus. Um, as we heard from him, it's a very strange interaction, isn't it? Uh, we're so familiar with the story that perhaps some of the strangeness of it is, is lost on us. He goes to Jesus being as an expert of the law, used to being treated with respect as one of Israel's teachers. But he has these his expectations shattered by this rural self-taught rabbi from Galilee up the back country of Israel so what are we to make of it what's this story about well as we heard from Nicodemus instead of filling in the blanks for him and answering his questions Jesus blows Nicodemus's worldview apart by telling him that he must be born from above that he must be born again born not by the flesh but born by the spirit and as we get into our first section, we see Jesus dives straight in and he cuts straight through the normal polite banter and cuts straight to the chase. In our first section, we have Jesus telling Nicodemus that he must have new birth from above in verses 1 to 10. Now, we've already heard a bit about who Nicodemus is and his position in Jewish society, but we get another little subtle clue about him from John. Last week, you remember, if you were here, that Tim talked about um, the end of chapter 2, telling us that many people believed in Jesus' name, but then have a look at verse 24 of chapter 2. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about man, for he knew what was in each man. Now, I'm aware that this version isn't gender inclusive. Uh, I'm using an old uh, version of the NIV. Most modern versions, versions use people rather than man. And normally I would do the same. But in this case, 
I actually want to bring out something that's in the original text. The original language uses the word man and I think John uses it in a very deliberate way to show the link between the end of chapter 2 and the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3. So in chapter 3 verse 1 we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Uh, again, the most recent version of the NIV has changed the, this around but this is the word order of the original Greek. If we put them together, the link becomes quite obvious. Have a look at it with me. So from chapter two, verse, chapter 2, verse 25. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now in the original Bibles, you haven't got chapter breakdowns. So in the original text, it just flowed straight on like this. And I think John is making the point, making the link between the people at the end of chapter 2 who believed Jesus, but Jesus knew that their faith was a shallow kind of faith, so he did not entrust himself to them. He's making the link between those people and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of those people. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement of Nicodemus. He was in the camp of those who didn't really trust Jesus or he didn't really understand who he was I might might have had a kind of a faith but it wasn't but it was a fickle faith that Jesus couldn't trust and that assessment is reinforced by another little detail that we have here at the beginning of the chapter Uh, have a look at verse 2 Nicodemus came to Jesus when he came to Jesus at night we already heard why he may have done that, so he's not seen by others, so he goes under the radar. But in John's Gospel, darkness, night, has a deeper significance as well. It symbolises ignorance, a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, and more than that, a rejection of the light, a rejection of what's true, a rejection of God. Nicodemus was still in the darkness. Despite being Israel's teacher, he doesn't understand God's ways. And verse 3, in verse 3, Jesus tells him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The phrase born again can also mean born from above. The... the, um, the word in the original Greek means both and I think Jesus has both meanings in mind born again and born from above a second birth and being born from God from above Nicodemus hasn't been born from above he hasn't seen the kingdom of God despite all his knowledge and learning he remains on the outside and he shows by his response in verse 4 that the idea of a radical new birth is something that he hasn't even imagined. Totally out of left field for him. Jesus goes on to explain that he's talking about a spiritual birth, not the normal natural birth. And he tells Nicodemus he shouldn't be surprised at what he's saying. It's not a new, new idea. In verse 10 he asks, You are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? This is actually something Nicodemus should have known about. 
As Israel's teacher, he knew his Old Testament scriptures. Back in verse 5, there's a little hint, a little reference to a very famous passage in the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have twigged with. He should have known about it. Verse 5 reads, No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Now, we might naturally think Jesus here is talking about the contrast between natural birth, a born of water, as in um, a woman's waters breaking before the baby's burn and born, and then a spiritual birth. Or it could even be talking about baptism and spiritual birth. But I think Jesus has something else in mind. The prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament wrote about a time when God's people will have a new beginning. This is God's promise. In Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See the link between what Jesus says and Ezekiel 26, 36? God will make his people clean with water. He will give them a new heart, a heart of flesh, and he will put his spirit in them. And that idea is not only here in Ezekiel 36, it's sprinkled through the whole Old Testament, particularly the Old Testament prophets. It comes hot on the heels of passages that hammer away at how lost the Israelites are, at how sinful God's people are, how they are without hope because they can't and they won't obey God. But instead of leaving them to rot in their own misery, God's solution is to fix the problem himself by giving his people a new life, to put a new spirit in them where previously they only had a, a heart of stone. That's a message of hope that shines through the pages of the Old Testament and Nicodemus should have recognised it. He should have known that's the same promise that Jesus is talking about here. Being born again, born from above, a completely new beginning. But Nicodemus was blind to it. He was still in darkness. He couldn't see past his religious worldview that told him that he was on the right track, that he was on the inside running, that he was in the kingdom. He couldn't see past his traditions that told him that if he kept God's law and did all the right things, he was okay. And he was so wrapped up in his position as Israel's teacher, he had so much invested in his status as a good faithful Pharisee that it was beyond his imagination that he'd missed the boat and that he needed to throw all that stuff out the window and start again with God with empty hands. Now we might shake our heads at how thick Nicodemus was, how dumb could he be, but maybe we're not that different. Because deep down we all love to think that we come to God offering something on the table. A little bit like going to a job interview where the 
interviewer asks, now what have you got to offer us, Marshall? Well, I've got this and this. But with it, deep down we all think we've got something to offer God. It doesn't have to be theological qualifications like Nicodemus. It doesn't have to be experiences, experience in Christian ministry. It might be skills you have. You're a good listener. Or you're good at offering wise advice. Or perhaps it goes deeper than that. Perhaps at a character level, you think that you have a character that people praise and really value. Perhaps you're particularly patient. Perhaps you're a warm, loving person who people trust and you can easily get alongside others and encouraging people. Great characteristics to have. But they don't get us right with God. Nicodemus's problem and my problem, and I suspect it's your problem as well, is that it's almost unthinkable for us to face the reality that with God we bring absolutely nothing to the table except our sin. We empty and bankrupt with no possibility of reforming ourselves no chance of entering the kingdom by our own steam that's why we need a completely new beginning new birth new life from above not one that we bring about but one that god does for us perhaps because it was so unthinkable to admit that he was powerless to get right with god by himself nicodemus just didn't get having to be born from above you are Israel's teacher Jesus says and you don't understand these things then in the next section Jesus goes on to say that he's like a witness in court testifying to what is true but Nicodemus and people like him do not accept his testimony so in our second section Jesus says that he is the one who comes from above he testifies to what, to what has come from heaven and it's he himself who has come from heaven. Jesus is the expert witness. He alone is qualified to talk about heaven because he has come from heaven. Have a look at verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is the name that Jesus gave himself. And it's a very significant name. We heard from Nicodemus a moment ago that the Son of Man is a figure that he recognised. It's a figure found in the book of Daniel where it's talking about God's King, the Messiah. Have a look at a couple of verses from Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. A king who would have authority over all nations, ruling over an everlasting kingdom. It's a pretty godlike picture, isn't it? Jesus is driving the point home that he is uniquely qualified to talk about things from heaven, the way that God works in human beings, because he alone is from God. 
In fact, in using the term the Son of Man, in reminding um, Nicodemus of that picture from Daniel 7, Jesus is strongly hinting to the reality that he has all God's authority to rule over an eternal kingdom. Jesus then goes on to talk more about the Son of Man. And in the next section, he goes on to explain why the one who came from heaven came into the world. Our third section, in our third section, the Son was sent above, from above to save in verses 14 to 18. Jesus starts off in verse 14 with another image from the Old Testament that Nicodemus talked about earlier, Moses lifting up the, state in the snake in the desert. We won't read that story now, but here's a quick summary. Moses was leading the Israelites out of the desert. They'd just come out of Egypt, out of the grasp of Pharaoh. They've crossed the Red Sea. But the people sinned and, they were, um, and God caused them to wander in the desert for 40 years. They were eventually going towards the land of Canaan, but they were lost on their way. They didn't get there for 40 years. As often happened, the people grumbled they whinged against Moses and against God for bringing them into the desert. They didn't have enough water. They didn't have enough food. They didn't trust God, so they whinged. And so God punished them by sending venomous snakes among them. A lot of people died. The Israelites then cried out to Moses saying, We've sinned. Moses, please pray for us. Moses did pray. And God told Moses to build a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then the people were to look at the snake when they were bitten by the venomous snakes and they would be saved. They wouldn't die. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he would fulfill the same role as the bronze snake. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Instead of looking at the snake, those who look to the Son of Man and believe would have eternal life. The snake was lifted up on a pole. Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. The Son of Man the king who would rule over all nations and all people in an eternal kingdom. But then the twist in the plot. This king would be lifted up. Now lifting up has a figurative meaning as well as a physical meaning of going up on the cross. Figuratively, it means to be glorified. His name would be made great. He would be made famous. But it wouldn't be in the way Nicodemus would have expected. Instead of coming with cheering crowds and trumpets like a king in victory at the head of a procession, this king is lifted up. He has shown his greatness by dying for the world. And that act, dying on the cross, reveals so much about God and what he is willing to do for us, how much he loves the world. That's us, you and I. And so we come to the most famous verse in the Bible, which a lot of you can probably recite off by heart. John 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God the Father sent his one and only son, the Son of Man. He is the King and he will reign over God's kingdom forever. But he reveals his kingship by saving the world. He defeats the powers of darkness. He has defeated the power of sin in you and I. And now we only have to believe in him. Like the Israelites only had to look at the snake in the desert. We only need to put it, turn our eyes to Jesus and to trust in him. And we will have eternal life. We will be part of his eternal kingdom. You and I need a saviour because without one we stand condemned, which is, our, which is the subject of the last section in verses 18 to 21. Light from above exposes the darkness below. We are told in verse 19 that people love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus is the light who has come into the world but we have all loved the darkness because our deeds are evil and we don't want our deeds to be exposed. Verse 20. It's a terrifying prospect, the idea that someone can see right into our heart. Have you ever had that experience? At least it is for me and I suspect it is for you. Because even at my best, even when I'm doing something that's genuinely good, I'm still full of self-centeredness and pride, self-interest. But then if my heart was completely, ex was completely exposed at times when I'm not at my best, when I'm tired, when my mind drifts, when my thoughts wander, well, that's not a prospect that I even want to think about. And so we all want to hide our darkest secrets because we all have something to hide. But with God, when we're confronted with God, we instinctively know that there's no hiding, there's no running. He is light, inescapable light that shines right through us and we feel naked and exposed. And so our natural inclination is to try to run, try to hide. Perhaps like Nicodemus, we hide behind our religion. Or maybe we hide behind the pleasures of this world. Whatever it is, we try to keep God at arm's length. Because we've run away from the light and loved the darkness, God's verdict here is that we stand condemned. We are under God's wrath. We are under his judgment. We are like the Israelites in the desert being bitten by the snakes. The Israelites were in a, a desperate state. They had no hope of saving ourselves, which is why they cried out to Moses, pray for us. We can't save ourselves. They needed God to intervene or they would have all perished. And we find ourselves in that same position. Without God giving us a radical new beginning, we've no hope of being right with him. Well, let's try to bring it all together. We've covered a lot of ground today. 
Nicodemus comes to Jesus wanting to know who he was. Jesus turns the spotlight on him and told Nicodemus that he needs to be born from above, born again, born by the Spirit. Then Jesus says he is the one who comes from above. He is the Son of Man and that he has been sent from above to save the world, a world that is condemned and in darkness. Now in this story it's not just Nicodemus who's under the spotlight because Jesus is putting you and I under the light as well. If you are already a follower of Jesus, his word for you is that just as you come to him with nothing in your hands, so you continue to offer him nothing. We began our Christian life as a totally new beginning where we needed God to break through and start again. We contributed nothing and we continue to live for him day by day knowing that it's still all by his grace. We still wake up each morning with empty hands. We are beggars in the bread line knowing where we get the bread from. And our role is just to point others towards the source of that bread. Or perhaps you're here today as someone who, who's a bit like Nicodemus. Perhaps you're attracted to Jesus. Perhaps you want to find out more, but you're not yet a follower of Jesus. If that's you, Jesus is calling you to surrender like he did with Nicodemus to come to the point where you admit that you can't get you can't do anything to get to God to get closer to God by yourself you can't work your way to God you can't think your way to God you can't meditate your way to God you can only throw up empty hands in surrender and say to Jesus I must be born again and at this point, and at, and, and, and at that point, at that very point that we stop trusting ourselves and start trusting Jesus to save us, it's at that point that God works a miracle and we come into his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story, this strange story of <clears throat> Jesus telling Nicodemus that to enter his kingdom, he must be born again. Um, and Father, we recognise that the spotlight turns from Nicodemus to us and you challenge us with that same question. Have we be born, been born again? Because we know that we have no prospect of entering your kingdom without your intervention from above um, father if we don't yet know you we pray that you would work in our hearts and uh, drive us to you so that we depend only on you to be born again but if we do know you we pray that tomorrow the next day and every day after that we might wake up knowing that we come with empty hands and putting our trust only in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.